All right, welcome once again to City Church. So good to have all of you with us today. Uh, if you're just joining us, this is actually part four of our series called Bless This Home. And what we've been doing is we've been studying the Beatitudes, these eight statements of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 as he kind of kicks off his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And we found that that word Beatitude is actually from the, or from the Latin, uh, which actually means blessedness. So these are Jesus' keys for you and I to be blessed. And we've been taking these and applying them to our homes. And we've kind of wrapped this whole series around one statement. And that statement is, we are not just a Christian family, but we are a Christ-centered home. And I want to help unpack that for you in just a second. But before we get into the message today, I want to make sure I give you a couple of important things for you to know that are going on here. First of all, uh, next Sunday, we are going to be having our graduation Sunday. So any seniors, families of seniors who are graduating from high school, we're going to be honoring our seniors and blessing you guys with a gift and bringing you up here and praying over you next Sunday. So that'll be a week from today. Um, Also, our renovation project. You may have noticed some things have changed around the building from last week. We had a big work day yesterday. Thank you guys who were here to participate in that. But the big renovation project is going to be June 6th and 7th. That's a Friday and Saturday. If you're not familiar with what we're doing, basically um, we're going to be building uh, a new classroom out where our lobby is and turning this back area into our new lobby and building a wall uh, here to to encompass all that because we want to uh, take care of our children and we're actually going from five bays down to four. Um, so we're going to, to be turning that lobby bay uh, around quite a bit. So we got some construction. We're hiring somebody who's going to come in to be our foreman and kind of direct us. And then we're asking uh, all of us who can come and lend some labor, uh, unskilled labor in my particular case. Hopefully some of you have more skill than I do. We can come and be a part of this. Uh, so that's Friday, June the 6th. I know most of you are, are going to be working. I'm not asking you to take off work. If you can be here, love you to be here for that. If you can mark your calendar for Saturday the 7th, um, we'd love to get an army in here because there's some things that we have to have done in order to have our children's ministry ready for Sunday morning, June the 8th. So if we can get, uh, man, as many men, women, young people down here as possible, bring tools, bring work gloves, bring stuff you can get dirty, paint it on, all that fun stuff. We're going to have a whole variety of projects, even stuff for people like me who are kind of worthless. Uh, so we're going to, to make this happen. So, man, come join us if you can do that. There's a sign-up sheet out at the Connection Center. If you already know, hey, I'm going to be available one of these days or more than one one of these days, you can sign up today. If you need to check your calendar, talk with your wife, get permission. I understand that. Uh, go ahead and do that, and you can get signed up next week, or you can shoot an email or a text or whatever. But, uh, man, please, please, please help us out with the renovation project. And then lastly, um, Camp 662, uh, we just had our, our deadline for the early bird price, but that does not mean camp registration is over with. We still have Camp 662 packets out at the Connection Center. If you know a student uh, in 6th through 12th grades, anybody who's going into 6th grade through anybody who's in 12th grade now are eligible to go to Camp 662, and I can direct you to a whole list of, of over probably 200 kids whose lives have been impacted in a deep, deep way at Camp 662 down through the years. It's a blast. They're going to love it. They're going to enjoy themselves. They're going to come back full of Jesus, a whole lot more so than they left. So uh, help get your young people plugged in to that. All right, Christ 
Christ-centered family. We're not just a Christian home. We're a Christ-centered family. If you haven't been here with us, you might be asking, well, what's the difference? Uh, To be a Christian, to be Christ-centered, seems like it should be the same thing, and you're right. But unfortunately, in America, in the day and age that we live in, a Christian doesn't always mean what it used to mean. In fact, uh, somewhere between 80 and 90%, depending on which study you look at, of Americans claim to be Christians. Where we live, being a Christian is basically the default mode. If you don't know what you are, if you haven't embraced anything, you might say, okay, well, I know I'm not a Muslim. I know I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not really an atheist. I guess I'm a Christian. That's pretty much how it goes. And people may not even think that through and articulate it, but it's really just what a lot of people fall on as the default. It's what my family was, what the people around me are. And they have that label Christian, but if we were to look into their lives, to look into their homes and peel back the curtains, we wouldn't see any evidence of the fruit of Jesus Christ in their lives. And so we are going to not settle for the baseline statement of being a Christian family. We're going to rise to the level and claim for ourselves we are not just a Christian family, but we are a Christ-centered home. And so that's the idea that we've been wrapping this series around. Now, uh, it's not like this everywhere. We don't have to make this distinction across the globe. In fact, just this very week, you may have seen in Sudan, there was a lady, a 27-year-old woman who is eight months pregnant, who was sentenced to death for what they call apostasy, because she was, grew up a Muslim and has embraced Christianity, and they gave her a chance to return to Islam, and she would not denounce Christ, and so they've sentenced her to death. And I want to read a couple excerpts for, for, to you from an article on NBCNews.com about this. It says her lawyers, uh, excuse me, her name is Maryam Yewa Ibrahim. It says her lawyers told Amnesty International that religious clerics in court had asked the 28, 27-year-old Thursday if she would recant her faith, but she told them, I am a Christian. No need to distinct, distinguish between Christian and Christ-centered when you're on trial for your own death, for being a Christian. A tweet that they shared in the article from Amnesty UK media team said this, the judge said, we gave you three days to recant, but you insist on not returning to Islam. I sentence you to be hanged to death. Fortunately, there's a whole lot of our world that that's a reality right now. Anywhere between 33 and 50% of the countries on planet Earth, you will suffer significant persecution simply for saying, I'm a Christian. That persecution may be your family shuns you and rejects you and basically disowns you. That persecution may be a form of an arrest. It may come in the form of losing a job. But in much of the Earth right now, in 2014, it is very difficult to say, I'm a Christian. You have to mean it. You have to believe it. It has to have gotten a hold of you and transformed your life. America, obviously, is not really that way. And so, uh, if you have a Christ-centered life like Miriam does, there's going to be some evidence in your life. You're going to be able to see it. You won't suffer the same persecution. Most of us in this room will never die for our faith. Perhaps none of us in this room will ever face dying for our faith, but there's got to be some evidence. 
There's got to be something that looks different about us than the way that the world looks. There's got to be some fruit that shows up in our families, in our conversations, uh, that Jesus is not just a convenient part of my life. He's not just the guy that I go to worship on Easter Sunday or whatever day that I happen to get out of bed on time. Jesus isn't just the guy that I wear a cross on my neck or a bracelet with his initials on my wrist, but he's actually the one who I revolve my life around and my family around. And if that's you, you are going to be different. If we are Christ-centered and we follow the Beatitudes that we've seen, if we hunger and thirst after righteousness and we are filled, if we uh, are merciful and we receive mercy, if we have a pure heart and we see God, if we begin to have these things evidenced in our life, we're also going to have another result. And that other result shows up in the eighth beatitude that Jesus shares with us. And here's the key thought for today. This is going to be fun. Dwindle said it's going to be exciting. Just for the record, I didn't say most exciting. I said most important. I promise no excitement today. Uh, But here's, if you're taking notes, here's our key thought today. If you are a Christ-centered family, you will be persecuted. Yes! Come on. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. No, right? We don't really get real spiritual right there. We don't really get real pumped up about that one. This, we're kind of like Matthew 5.10. We'll kind of skip past that verse. But the truth is, if you begin to put these things into your life, if you begin to choose the life of purity, if you begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, there's going to be persecution. It's going to happen. People will mock you. They'll make fun of you. They'll ridicule you or... Worse, because that's what happens when you're Christ-centered. I don't know how it will play out in your family. Let me give you just one example of how it's played out in mine. One of Melody's first jobs that she got after she moved here. Uh, She had not her direct boss, but another superior who loved to make fun of her faith. This person really wasn't a person of any kind of a faith, and uh, the whole office was what you would probably term as non-Christian in the way that they spoke to one another and the words that they chose to use. And, and Melody stood out because she had a different vocabulary. <laughs> she didn't use the same set of very colorful words that everyone else in the office used. And so this particular person, would, all you ever do is go to church. All you you don't, can't even use these words. You don't have any fun. Like just looking for any way to, to kind of needle her, just any kind of way to make her shrink back from her faith. And some of you have experienced very similar things to that. And, and when we compare this to the persecution that is our brothers and sisters receive around the world, it's kind of like, wow, how can we even be bothered by this? And yet so many times we do shrink back from standing up because somebody is going to make a little comment. I'm not going to pray over my food because somebody's going to say something. I'm not going to read my Bible because what is someone going to think? And I want you to see today that that persecution, when we receive it, is actually, number one, it's going to happen, but secondly, it's really a blessing in our life. Uh, If you go back to week one, we talked about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And if you do that in an unrighteous world, people will laugh at you. Week two, we talked about blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. And, and this is the one that's probably the most accepted in our culture right now. Like, hey, it's okay to be merciful, right? Like most people are going to embrace that. 
But if you begin to build a culture of mercy in your family, in your relationships, and the way you deal with others, somebody at some point is going to think that you're weak. Somebody at some point is going to call you a wuss, or they might use a different word for it, but they're going to put you down in some sort of a way. Someone is going to come against you. If you do what we talked about last week, and you pursue purity in your heart, in a world that glorifies and exalts impurity, there is going to be some pushback. There is going to be some criticism. There is going to be some persecution. We need to understand it. We need to expect it. We need to accept it. Jesus says it very clearly in the final beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. He says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says that you are blessed when you're persecuted. And I'll be honest, in my flesh, I'm like, no, bro. Like, it doesn't really feel like a blessing when I'm persecuted. It's not really something to celebrate. I don't have Matthew 5.10 tattooed on my wrist. I don't know anybody who does. It's not like I'm standing on this. This is my life first. Thank you, Jesus. I'm claiming it. I've never met that person. I'm not sure if, what I'd think of that person if I did meet them. Uh, but we don't like this truth. Very much. This is uncomfortable for us. There's a tension here. And unlike the rest of the Beatitudes where Jesus makes a statement and then he makes a promise. He says, blessed are you when you do this, for this is going to happen. On all the other seven Beatitudes, he stops there and goes on to the next. But right here on the eighth Beatitude, Jesus actually goes further and it actually gets crazier. Listen to verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you. Yes. Blessed are you when they persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Don't you love it when people spread lies about you? Don't you love it when there's rumors going around that aren't true? Oh, man, it's the best. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. You see, if we're going to live a Christ-centered life, it requires us to flip our perspective on so many things because our flesh does not agree with this. Our flesh does not like this. Our flesh will not embrace this. In the natural, this makes no sense whatsoever. But Jesus says when you're persecuted, when you're insulted, when you're slandered, you're blessed and great is your reward for it. Now, some of you say, okay, exactly What does this mean? What does it mean to be blessed for pursuing righteousness? Righteousness means right living in this context. And you're thinking, okay, obviously, Troy, you're a pastor. You're a preacher. You're kind of weird. You're going to get persecuted. You kind of chose that, right? Like, you can't, okay, I understand. Well, you don't have to be a pastor to be persecuted. You don't have to be a preacher to receive this. In fact, the very first example of persecution in all of Scripture is Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. And Cain, you may know the story, Cain uh, gets very jealous against his brother Abel, and he ends up killing his brother. But you know why he killed his brother? Not because his brother was preaching to him. Not because his brother was telling him, you're doing it wrong. He killed his brother because his brother simply honored God with his life. His brother simply did it right. His brother simply walked in righteousness, and Cain's own conviction, his own sin convicted him, and he saw, he's doing it right, and I don't like that, and he killed his brother. He took his life simply because his brother was living right. When we live right, when we have a righteous life, 
those who are not living right are not going to appreciate it. They're not. And we need to understand that. So I don't know what it'll be for you, but when you have a Christ-centered family, you're going to have different values. Maybe that means as a young person growing up, they're going to make fun of you for not having premarital sex. They're going to mock you because you don't do those things that everybody else does. You don't participate in those things. You've got that dreaded V word on you and you're a virgin. And they're going to mock you and make fun of you for that. Maybe for you it means that you don't go to the same movies that your friends go to because there's a little poop in the brownies. And if you don't get that, you need to listen to last week's podcast. But, you know, hey, I'm not putting that into me. I'm not going to digest that. That's not going to be me. Maybe for you it means that you're not going to put your child on that sports team, in that sports league, because you know that that league plays games when your family goes to church and people are going to freak out. (gasps) How could you not put your six-year-old in this league? Why would you do that to their future? And you say, you know what? Because we believe that it's a better investment in our kids' future for them to be in church. And for them to be a part of that team, there's no sports league that's worth taking my kid out of the family of God. And you're going to stand up, and there might be some persecution, there might be some suffering, there might be some things that you lose, but I promise you, you're blessed in the process. If you are a Christ-centered family, you will be persecuted. So that raises the question, as a dad, as a mom running a family, as a future father, future mother, wherever your situation may be, how do you prepare your family for persecution? If it's going to happen, if Jesus promised it, if he says you're going to be persecuted, how do we prepare for it? What do we do to be ready for persecution? First of all, if you're going to prepare your family for persecution, I just want to give you three thoughts this morning, three things to consider on how to get your family ready for this, how to get your kids ready for the persecution that is going to come their way. Number one, you need to teach them to expect it. Teach them to expect it. Teach them to expect persecution. 1 Timothy 3.12, the Apostle Paul, who if you know about him, he went through some persecution in his life. He suffered some crazy stuff. He says to Timothy, his apprentice, this young man he's training, he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He didn't say everyone in a certain day and age, everyone in a certain generation. He didn't say everyone who wants to preach. He said everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus is going to be persecuted. Why? Because there's an enemy out there who doesn't like it. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be pushback. So if you're serious about this Christ-centered thing, if this is something you really want, if you've been hearing these messages and saying, God, bless my home. God, bring me that blessing. I want that in my life. You need to be ready. Persecution is going to come. You need to expect it. If you want to follow Christ, you will be persecuted. I'll, I'll give you some ways that my parents, who were certainly not perfect, but that they helped me learn to expect persecution. Here's some things that were different about us. Because you see, God is going to set some things in your heart that he maybe doesn't set in the heart of the family next to you or the family down the road or or somebody else in the church. This isn't just, hey, we're all going to do the same 17 things to be different from the world. God's going to lead you in some things. When you press into him, when you get close to him, he's going to start to reveal some plans for your family. So here's some of those ways that it fleshed out in our family. Number one, I was homeschooled for seven years. That's all you got to say. You're homeschooled, you're going to be persecuted, okay? Uh, man, we, we lived in Seattle, Washington, the most, like, God-hating, atheistic, liberal city in America. And my parents come out and say, you know what? Well, I was probably, like, two or three years old when we're, they felt like God spoke to them. You're going to homeschool your kids. And they made that commitment, and we got all 
kinds of pushback from neighbors, friends, family members, people at church. Don't think that you're immune to persecution from other Christians, by the way. Sometimes Christians can be the greatest persecutors of others in the faith when we decide to be Christ-centered. So we got all kinds of stuff. And so that was one level. Another level was my parents had a conviction, and then they felt like Halloween was just not God-exalting. It was not God-glorifying. And so we didn't celebrate Halloween. To this day, I'm 33 years old. I've never been trick-or-treating in my life. For some of you, that's like sacrilegious. Like, how is that even possible? You've missed out on so much. Well, you know what? I still had plenty of candy in my life, more than I need. So uh, it's probably good that I didn't go trick-or-treating. Uh, but, you, man, when you live in a neighborhood full of kids and you're all friends and we're out playing sports and stuff all the time, hey, what are you, gonna go, what are you doing for Halloween this year? What costume are you wearing? Where are you going to go trick-or-treating? Uh, we, we don't celebrate Halloween. You get some persecution. Like, that happened very, very early in life another way, kind of along the same lines. Um, my dad was raised in, in the Mormon faith. And in the Mormon faith, uh, his family taught him to believe in the Easter Bunny, Tooth Fairy, Santa Claus, etc. And so when he grew up and found out that none of those things were real, he believed that God wasn't real either. And uh, so he had a conviction when he came to Jesus and God got a hold of his life and turned his life around radically. I'm not going to teach my kids to believe in any of this nonsense. I'm not going to lie to my kids because I want them to know when I tell them about Jesus that Jesus is real. And so we didn't believe in Santa Claus. And I remember, uh, I never believed in Santa Claus from the, the earliest time that I've can remember life. Santa was just a dude in a red suit. Uh, and, and so I remember being at a work party. I don't even remember which parent it was, but we were at somebody's work party, and uh, it was in a house. And I was probably, I don't know, eight years old. And I remember the, this older guy who was probably having a little too much eggnog. Um, it was a Christmas party. Uh, so he comes to me, hey, Troy, what are you asking Santa Claus for for Christmas this year? And little eight-year-old nerdy Troy says, Santa Claus isn't real. I don't believe in Santa. <laughs> And he was so offended at my, David, how could you teach your son not to believe in Santa Claus? What's wrong with you? Why would you do that to your son? Like, so upset, like, like and started filling with some other words inspired by the eggnog, I'm sure. Um, and, and, and so I remember this very vividly, this experience. And so from a very, very young age, we learned to expect we're going to get some persecution. We're not like everybody else. And what I'm not, don't, don't mishear me on this. What I'm not saying is you don't need to believe in Santa Claus. I'm not saying you don't need to celebrate Halloween. I'm not telling you to homeschool your kids. I'll tell you this. For, for Melody and I, we're pretty sure we're not homeschooling our kids. Um, we're, we're pretty confident in that. We're also pretty sure that we are not going to celebrate Halloween and that we are not going to teach our kid to believe in Santa Claus. That's a conviction that we feel right now. Now, all that's subject to change, and God may speak to us differently as we go, but those are some convictions that we feel. I'm not telling you you need to follow those convictions, but I'm telling you if you're pursuing God, he's going to give you some. There's going to be something that he puts in your heart for your family that separates you from the world around you. Holy means set apart. We're not supposed to be like everybody else. And if you're really going to walk in the set-apart calling that God has on your life and your family, there's going to be some persecution. You need to teach your kids early to expect it because you know what? It's like getting that shot. You get just a little bit of the sickness early on so that later on when you really need it, you're immune to it. And I know so much of who I am today is a byproduct of the fact that my parents helped me to experience just a little bit of persecution at a young age. And to know, you know what? It's okay. 
that we don't do things the way everybody else does. It's okay that we're not like all of our friends. It's okay that we see things differently because you know what? We're following God's purpose for our family and our life. So whatever that looks like in your life, sell out to it. Teach your kids to expect it. Here's why this is so important. Hear me on this. Mom, dad, hear me. Future mom, future dad, hear me. This is so important because it's not getting better. The persecution in our country, we've been so blessed. It is so minor and so insignificant compared to the rest of the world, but it's not getting better. Every day, the culture gets a little more hostile to the word of God. Every day, the nation that we live in turns a little bit further away from our roots. Every day, the things that you and I believe that God's word tells us become a little more intolerant, become a little bit more hateful, become a little bit more bigoted in the eyes of our culture. And the persecution that your kid, who's two years old right now, is going to experience when they're 40 is going to blow your mind from the things that you've gone through in your life. They need to be ready. We need to teach them to expect it because outside of a supernatural move of God, it's not going to get better. They got to expect it because it's going to come. John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus says this. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. It's coming. And we need to teach our kids to expect it. Secondly, don't just teach them to expect it. Teach them to endure it. The Apostle Paul, once again, who went through so much, he said this in 1 Corinthians 4.12. He said, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. We take it. We push through it. And we keep moving forward. We don't whine about it. We don't gripe about it. We don't retaliate against it. Jesus says when we're persecuted for his name, we we turn the other cheek. And many times I think in America we have this entitlement to no persecution. And anytime we get just a little bit of persecution, man, we're filing a protest. We're starting a Facebook page. Like we're taking this person down because they're persecuting the church. We got to endure it. It's going to come. Jesus promised it. It's going to happen. Somewhere between right now, uh, like I said, 33 and 50% of the nations on earth see massive, massive persecution. And thankfully, we're not in that. But you might think that dying for your faith is the thing of the past. You might think that this is something that doesn't really happen anymore. Well, let me give you some research that I found this week from the early church. Acts chapter 7, there's a man named Stephen. And Stephen was the very first martyr, the very first person who died for Jesus' name outside of Jesus himself. From that point on where Stephen was martyred, research tells us that from there to 1900, there were 14 million people killed for the name of Jesus. Down through history, there are documented 14 million cases of martyrdom. It's pretty sad. It's pretty tragic. From 1900 to 2000, 26 million people martyred for the name of Jesus. This is not a relic of the church's past. This is something that's increasing. The current rate is somewhere around 159,613 Christians martyred every year, just about 160,000. I mean, since 2000, there have been over 2.25 million Christians on the planet who died for the name of Jesus. It's increasing. It's accelerating. This is not just something that we read about in history books. This is something that's happening on our planet right now. So when you get ridiculed... (laughs) 
because you're not going to the beach with all your friends for spring break to play past the STD, and they think that there's something wrong with you, you know, you know what, I'm going to endure this because God's called me to something better, right? Praise God. Man, when when somebody mocks you in some little way or makes some little comment about you, we're going to endure it because we know we got brothers and sisters who are going through a whole lot worse. And if we can stand in some small way with them and for them, we're going to do it. We're going to take it like a man or a woman of God. When I, I was in my premarital phase and I was dating and trying to find a mate, there was a girl that I dated for a very short time here in the area back in around 2007. And uh, there were some things that happened in that relationship that made it pretty clear pretty early on that it wasn't uh, my future wife. And so we, we separated pretty early. But the, the actual very first time that we hung out, just the two of us, uh, was a Saturday night. And we, we hung out pretty late and we were just talking and, and everything. And I was at this point in time, I was over our children's ministry. And I was teaching the next day in, in our kids' class. And so gets to be about 11.30, and I said, you know what? I need to go home and get some sleep. I'm teaching our children's ministry tomorrow. And she was so offended <laughs> that I was going to prioritize our kids over spending more time with her. She was, like, blown away. And she said some pretty amazing things. Uh, and, and you know what? I, I should have just decided, okay, that's not the girl for me right there. I'm a pastor. That's, I need somebody who's going to support me in this. Uh, but I didn't. I stayed with her for, for a couple more weeks, and we talked and realized that it wasn't the right thing. Uh, but I did go home, and I did go to bed, and I did show up to teach our kids because it mattered to me. It was a priority to me. And, and there's little bitty ways that we're going to endure persecution like that, that God's going to place a conviction on your heart that this is what I want you to do. And, and when you do, here's what's crazy. Something happens inside of you. When you endure persecution, it doesn't make you love Jesus less. It makes you love him more. It doesn't make you want to spend time with him less. It makes you spend time with him more. Something goes on inside that makes you just a little bit more into the image of Christ. My senior year of high school, I was chosen. In fact, I think I have a picture. Will you put that picture up for us? Um, This is a really janky picture of a really janky award. It's uh, the National Merit Scholarship Award, which, believe it or not, is a super valuable and super prestigious award, but obviously the graphic design was not that great in 1999. Um, That award basically meant that I could go to virtually any public university in the country for free. Basically, I got that award because I was really good at taking tests, and my SAT scores kicked some serious tail. And I was a lazy student, but they didn't know that off of my scores. Uh, And so I could have gone anywhere. And my high school guidance counselors, you know, they sat down with me, and they've got a whole list of prestigious. This is a big deal. By the way, this was, I was in a high, small school in North Carolina, in a small county. We had three schools in our county, and I was the first national merit finalist in seven years in our county. They did a newspaper article about me. Like, this was a big, big deal in our little town. And so when they found out that I wasn't taking these scholarships because I was called to ministry and I was going to a Christian school, the guidance counselors lost their mind. They met with me every week to try to talk me out of what I wanted to do. They called my parents multiple times to say, you realize your kid is throwing away his future. You realize the potential that Troy has, the things that he could accomplish. Do you realize how prestigious this is? And he's just going to walk away from it. Do you even know what you're doing? And to my parents' credit, man, I praise God for it. They took that right with me. They endured right through, and they supported me. They had my back on my decision from the very first day that I made it. You're going to go do what God 
has called you to do. And so understand, if you're going to fulfill God's calling on your life, and I don't mean God's calling to be a pastor, I mean God's calling for you, whatever that looks like, you're going to endure some persecution. And here's what happened for me. When I went through that persecution, it didn't make me reconsider, am I called to ministry? It didn't make me reconsider, is this really what I should do? Am am I missing it? Am I blowing it? You know what it did? It steeled my resolve. Man, it it made me that much more determined and that much more confirmation in my life that this is exactly what God wants me to do. Obviously, the enemy doesn't want me to do it. Obviously, the enemy doesn't want me to follow this plan or there wouldn't be this opposition. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. It didn't cause me to hesitate. It didn't cause me to doubt. Man, that persecution that I endured, man, it was a blessing. It made me that much stronger in what God had for me. So let me say this. If you haven't endured any persecution for a while, I think you're at a disadvantage. I think in America, the fact that we don't suffer a lot of persecution, I think we're spiritually at a disadvantage from a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world. And I, I praise God for our freedoms, and I praise God that, that we can come together and celebrate and worship Jesus for free. I, you know, I'm not saying, hey, let's shut down religious freedom so we can all be persecuted. But what I'm saying is there is a disadvantage. It's going to be a little bit harder for us to get closer to Jesus. It just is. Because, man, when that persecution comes, when that pressure comes, there's something that happens inside of us. There's a unity. There's a passion that comes as the church rallies together, as it weeds out those who aren't really committed, those who don't really believe this, those who aren't really all in. Persecution will strengthen you, and it will unite your family. That persecution united our family. We were on the same page. Understand this. When your family identity is weak, persecution is strong. When your family identity is strong, persecution is weak. If your family doesn't know who it is, if your kids don't know who they are, persecution is going to affect them. It's going to rock the boat really hard. But if they know who they are in Christ, if they know we are a Christ-centered family and we are about Jesus, number one, that's what we're doing, that's who we're selling out to, persecution is not going to harm them. It's just going to bring you closer together. Expect it when it comes and do it. Number three, teach them to embrace it teach them to embrace it. We're going to teach them to expect persecution. We're going to teach them to endure persecution. And when it comes, we're going to teach them to embrace it. You thank God that you get to suffer in some small, insignificant way like Jesus did. First Peter chapter 4, the apostle Peter, the the famous disciple, he ends up in, in Rome. And he's actually pastoring in Rome in the very center of the Roman Empire. And there where Peter is pastoring is going to be the epicenter of the first persecution of the church. They're going to take Christians and and bring them in to the center of the Roman Colosseum and put them in with lions. And people are going to celebrate and roar and cheer as these Christians are ripped to shreds and devoured alive by these lions. They're going to take them and, and they're going to tie ropes to their hands and to their feet. And each rope is going to be attached to a different horse. And at a certain sign, they're going to crack a whip. And those four horses are going to run in opposite directions. And they're going to rip all four limbs off of their bodies and leave them there to bleed to death. This is the church that the Apostle Peter is writing to. Listen to what he says, knowing what is going to happen. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange was happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Consider it an honor to suffer along with Jesus. And then verse 16, skipping down a couple of verses, listen to this, it is so powerful. However... If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Your friends at work are making fun of you because you pray before you eat your lunch. Praise God 
that you bear that name. Young man, if, if your friends think it's crazy that it's Friday night and you won't go to the pony with them, and they're like, why won't you do this? You're like, hey, I'm not, you're, they're like, you're not married. Why won't you participate in this? You're like, look, I'm going to honor my future wife. I'm going to honor the God who I serve. I'm not going to put that stuff into my mind. I'm going to treat women like sisters in Christ. I'm going to treat them like daughters of the king. I'm not going to treat them like objects for sex. There might be some pushback. There might be some persecution from your friends. Consider it a blessing that you could suffer with Christ. Blessed are you when you walk away from a business deal that seemed extremely lucrative, but you knew that it was slightly unethical. And everybody else at your firm holds up their hands and says, why would you walk away from that? This was such a great opportunity, but you know it wasn't the right thing to do. Blessed are you when you suffer some persecution in some small way. Thank God that you get to do it. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Some of you, you may think you're doing something wrong because you're going through so much opposition, because there's so much difficulty in your life. And I'm here to tell you today that you may not be doing something wrong. It may be because you're doing something right. And there is opposition that will come because there is an enemy who doesn't want you to do what is right, who doesn't want you to stand up. And many times we think that, that everything is, man, if we're, if we're honoring God, if we're serving God, everything's going to be easy, everything's going to come together right. And I tell you, most of the times it, do, it doesn't. Most of the times there's some struggle. Most of the time there's some difficulty. And so if you're in that season today, I want to encourage you. It may not be that you're doing something wrong. It may be that you're doing something very, very right. And understand that the spiritual battle is so, so real. Here's what I found as I look back on my life and look at the periods uh, of greatest persecution that I've experienced. Uh, when I was, went to public school for the very first time in eighth grade, and God used this little nerdy kid to start a, almost like a revival on his campus. And people started coming to Jesus right and left. There was a lot of persecution in that season. When I got my first secular job, my first real job, I worked at Taco Bell. And there at Taco Bell, when I was hired, there was three full-fledged Satanists on staff. There was a woman who ran adult entertainment games for a vampire cult. There were, I'm not making this up. I couldn't make this up. I'm not that creative. Uh, there, there were other levels of just awful, awful debauchery. Uh, I was the only person who lived a Christ-centered life suffered some real persecution. But you know what happened in those seasons and other seasons where I look back at, at the persecution I've gone through? It caused me to push closer to Jesus. Those were my, my deepest times in my prayer time when I had to wake up and say, God, I need you with me today. I need you to protect me today. I need you to speak through me today. I need you to help me make sure that I control my tongue, that I don't say something that's going to distract somebody from you, that I don't say something that's going to be used against you. Help me. Those were the greatest, deepest times uh, of my intimacy with God. They were also the greatest times of my impact horizontally. See, persecution isn't just to be expected and endured. It's to be embraced. And here's what I would tell you. I would tell you not to worry when you're going through persecution. I would tell you you should probably worry when you're not. Don't worry when the world doesn't like you. Start to worry when the world loves you. When there's no persecution in your life, and I'm not saying that we seek it out, but if there's no persecution in your life, it's probably because you look too much like the world around you. And that Jesus is calling us to something better. And if we're going to build a Christ-centered family, we teach our kids to expect persecution. We teach our kids to endure persecution. And when it comes, we teach them to embrace it. 
because it's a blessing to be able to suffer in some small way along with Jesus. So don't ever worry when you go through persecution. Worry when you're not. As we wrap up our service today.